Thank you for joining us for the University of Illinois Press podcast, The Upside. I am your host, Elizabeth Hess. I am joined today by Dr. Noel Carroll, a distinguished professor of philosophy at the City University of New York. Dr. Carroll has recently contributed to the spring special issue of the Journal of Aesthetic Education, Forget Taste. Dr. Carroll, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's very nice to be with you. Before we begin, can you tell me a little bit about yourself, from your background, from your studies and your teachings? I have two PhDs, one in cinema studies from New York University and one in philosophy from the University of Illinois at Chicago. I really backed into philosophy from cinema studies and from being a critic, a film critic, also a theater and dance critic, because of my dissatisfaction with the way that the cinema and the other humanities were being analyzed and theorized, especially in the 70s and 80s. I thought that what became called theory with a capital T in the humanities was very unsatisfying, and I moved to philosophy to both find a way of criticizing that method and also of eventually evolving an alternative to it. The Journal of Aesthetic Education editor Pradeep Dillon says of you, quote, not only is Carol the leading philosopher in this area, but the essay is of groundbreaking significance. What is the overarching theme of the essay you wrote for the journal that drew such praise from the editor? The overarching aim of the journal is to present an alternative model of criticism to one that has been very long-standing in the philosophy of art and still holds a great deal of sway today. That model is based on the notion of taste as it was introduced in the 18th century. Here, taste is connected to the idea of pleasure. So basically, the notion is that a work is good if it gives you pleasure and it's to be demoted in its value if it fails to deliver pleasure or doesn't give you enough pleasure. In that sense, it's a kind of hedonic mode of criticism. It's that kind of approach to the criticism of art that I'm opposed. Hedonic approach to criticism, of course, is non-cognitive. It's an approach to criticism that's based on feelings, specifically feelings of pleasure and displeasure. I am trying to introduce a form of criticism that's cognitively based. That's a matter of application of our, our cognitive faculties. I'm committed to that partly because of my own practice as a critic. Uh, as I described earlier, I was a critic. It seems to me from my own practice of criticism, criticism is mostly involved in interpretation and analysis. When critics argue, they argue about their descriptions and their interpretations and their construals of the purposes of work. They don't act as if it was simply a matter of taste, a matter of saying, well, I felt pleasure and somebody responding, well, I didn't find pleasure in this or that work. I call my own approach to criticism a purpose-driven approach. By that, I mean that I think criticism proceeds by identifying the constitutive purposes of works and then examining the work to see how the artist's choices serve to realize those purposes or fail to realize those purposes. Now, that phrase I just used, 
constitutive purpose is probably an unfamiliar one, and it is somewhat technical. What I'm calling a constitutive purpose of a work is the purpose of the work that makes it the thing that it is. Just to give that somewhat of a gloss to make it sound less obscure, somebody might say, well, the purpose of a movie is to make money. That is a purpose of the movie, but it's not a constitutive purpose. It's not the constitutive purpose of a movie, say, like Renoir's Grand Illusion, to make money. The constitutive purpose is to illuminate certain features about the division of the world in nation, state, and the consequences of things like war that follow from it. That's the constitutive purpose. Of course, the filmmakers hoped that it would make money, but it wasn't the thing that made it what it is. It isn't the thing that determined what the shots would look like, how the actors would express their lines, how the story or the plot would develop. So just to summarize, the point of my article is not only to oppose what I call the hedonic approach, the taste approach to the criticism of our works, but to make a positive contribution in terms of the notion of what I'm calling a purpose-driven form of criticism, which relies on the notion of the constitutive purpose as the starting point for criticism, the starting point for the evaluation of whether or not the various parts of the artwork contribute to or fail to contribute to what makes that work the work it is. As a follow-up, when you call the article Forget Taste, are you being ironic? And to whom are you referring that you want to forget? Mostly I want philosophers to forget taste as a central idea in their account of our approach to the evaluation of artworks. I'm imploring philosophers of education and educators to abandon taste as the model of appreciation that they're attempting to impart to students. I don't want to deny that there's such thing as taste. We all have our personal taste, but I don't want us to confuse, as I think often happens, our personal tastes or personal taste, like do you prefer mustard or you prefer ketchup on your sandwich? I don't want that to be confused with critical taste, what's good, say, about a novel by Sally Rooney. Let's talk about your research interests. Among other topics, they include aesthetic theory, philosophy of film, philosophy of literature, philosophy of the visual arts, and social and cultural theory. Why are these topics pertaining to philosophy relevant no matter in what era they are taught? One thing that the ones that you have just mentioned that are of interest to me is that they're all concerned with questions of value. The two, let's say, deepest questions in philosophy are what is, that is, what exists, and how does it exist on the one hand. On the other hand, what's valuable, what's significant. And that value ring, often called axiology, includes ethics, morality, and of course, aesthetics. You've been a frequent contributor to the Journal of Aesthetic Education for years now. You also have written a lot of books, your most recent ones, Philosophy and the Moving Image and Arthur Danto's Philosophy of Art. Can you tell me about your publishing experiences both in journals and in books? My experience with respect to books has been very fortuitous. For the most part, the books I've written have been commissioned, at least in the sense that I've had 
contracts ahead of time. That's been very helpful because nothing quickens the mind like a deadline. I have been lucky in that respect. For the most part, I haven't submitted full written books to publishers, but written proposals ahead of time and had those proposals accepted and had advances extended to me. Mostly with respect to journals contributed to journals in the area of aesthetics, of which the Journal of Aesthetic of Education is one of the most respected. And the reason that I've chosen that route rather than submit to the more generalized journals of philosophy field, I wanted to directly address people working in aesthetics and the philosophy of art. I'm particularly attracted to the Journal of Aesthetic Education because I feel that the possibility of what I'll write will have real impact, or at least it will make an appeal to have real impact to to people who will be able to put the ideas I propose into practice. I've always been attracted, especially to the Journal of Aesthetic Education for that reason. For this particular issue, did you reach out to Pradeep Dillon with an idea, or did the editor reach out to you, or how did this begin? I think for all of the articles that I've submitted to the Journal of Aesthetic Education, I've sent them to the editor for consideration for publication. And in that way, my experience is, uh, maybe I should have said this earlier, in that way, my experience of writing for journals has been different than my book writing career because I'm now taxing my memory. I think I have only maybe once or twice submitted uh, through written books to publishers for consideration for publication. On the other hand, I can't remember when I submitted a proposal for an article to a journal for consideration for publication. There's a middle range here, uh, which are books or anthologies that often send out calls for paper where they ask for an abstract of the prospective paper you've written. That's a middle area for me. I have sent out proposals in answer to those calls for papers. So I guess there are three ways I've done it slightly differently, writing books, writing articles for journals, and writing articles for anthologies. Before I let you go, because I am a student of film, a lifelong fan of it, what movies would you say, can you just give me an example of a movie that you would say you've studied and the philosophy of that particular genre or movie? One movie that I think is a nice example of a movie that has philosophy is Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo, which the magazine Sight and Sound has elected as the greatest movie of all time. To see how the film articulates philosophy which, going back to my previous discussion, is what I would call one of the constitutive purposes of the film, is to notice how it uses that structure of the twice-told tale, the two love stories. The contrast between the two love stories introduces an issue in the philosophy of love. One of the questions the philosophy of love asks is, what is love? Why do we love our beloved? And one answer that naturally comes to mind, well, we love our lovers because of their qualities, because of their properties. Her, because of her generosity. She loves George because of his strength. People of all sexual 
preferences love each other for the properties they have. That's a pretty commonsensical answer, but once you give it a little bit of pressure, what you notice is that properties are the kind of things that other persons can have. So if your girlfriend or your boyfriend has a good sense of humor and that's one of the things you love that person for, would it be just as easy to replace your beloved with a clone who had the same sense of humor? Well, you hope not. Would it be possible if it turned out that somebody had a better sense of humor that what you would do would you trade up? And again, you hope not. In fact, if someone were willing to do that, you wouldn't really think that they loved you. And of course, that's what gets expressed in the second story in Vertigo. Judy keeps saying, will you love me for who I am? Uh, Scotty, played by Jimmy Stewart, is trying to turn her into Madeline, his lost love from the first part of the film, by giving Judy all of the properties, or at least the visual properties, of Madeline. So there you have one of the big tensions in the philosophy of love set out by the film. Do we love our beloveds because of their properties, which of course could be shared with someone else, or do we love them because they're unique? The film, among its other philosophical contributions, shows us that there's something wrong with the property view. What Scotty is trying to do to Judy to transform her into a simulacrum of Madeline is obviously wrong. Excellent example. I only wish Alfred Hitchcock could have heard that explanation. The special issue of the Journal of Aesthetic Education will be available in March on the University of Illinois Press website. Dr. Noel Carroll, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. It's been fun.